Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the markets were on a bit of a roller coaster ride the final two trading days of the week, despite more bad economic news coming out since the release of the much lower than expected GDP numbers on Wednesday. You know, if you haven't watched my video blog about that, make sure and do that because I spoke extensively about the the week GDP numbers and what was going on behind the scenes. And of course, uh, as I mentioned in that, everybody was blaming the bad news on the, the cold weather. Of course, we got more bad news today in April when it was not quite as cold and it certainly wasn't snowing. Yet the bad news parade continued to march on. Yet nobody seems to care. The Dow Jones, which was down about 200 points on Thursday, was up 183 points today. The Nasdaq, which was down, I think, better than 80, maybe 85 points, recouped about 64 points. So a real schizophrenic type market. I think the the players are still ignoring reality and still clinging to this fantasy of a recovering U.S. economy. The dollar did manage to claw back some of its losses, but still finished down substantially on the week. In fact, the euro closed the week at 112. That's the highest it's been, I think, since early January or sometime in January. We did get up above 113 intraday, uh, but there was some profit taking. The dollar was stronger against some of the commodity currencies as well. But, you know, we finished out the month of April this month, and April was the first down month for the U.S. dollar in, I think, 10 months. So we had a huge winning streak uh, that has come to a spectacular end. My guess is the dollar has seen its highs and it is heading lower as we get more and more economic news that will cold, throw cold water on the idea that the economy is recovering and that the Fed is getting ready to raise rates. Gold, uh, which did gain about $35 early in the week, managed to give most of that up uh, by end of the week. So gold was back below $1,200 uh, after having been above it uh, for the first few days of the week. Oil prices, though, continued to add to their gains. Today was down slightly, but we finished the week at 59.15. This is the first time we've closed above 59, although we closed above 59 yesterday. But that was the first time we've closed above 59 all year. We almost got to 60 intraday. I think I saw a print in the 59.80s. Uh, but oil prices continuing to move in the opposite direction of the dollar. Dollar going down, oil prices going up. And I do believe that 
oil prices will continue to rise, especially if I'm right on the dollar continuing to fall. And that's simply going to complicate uh, matters for U.S. consumers who are already struggling. But let's get to some of the economic data uh, that was ignored uh, in the market. On Friday, we got personal income and spending for March. All right, so this is still a March data point, but I think it's going to ultimately lead to a downward revision, one of the reasons for a downward revision for the already meager uh, 0.2% from Q1. And March income was expected to rise by two-tenths of a percent. Instead, it was flat, unchanged. And, and this is the lowest it's been since December of 2013. So you have to go back to December of 2013 to find a personal income number for a month that was lower than zero. And this is the fifth time in seven months that personal income had come out less than had been expected. Personal spending also lower than expected. They were looking for a 0.5% gain and they got a 0.4% gain. You know, so so much for the benefit of cheap gasoline. Everybody thought, oh, uh, consumers are going to take that windfall right to the mall. Uh-uh, they didn't do it. Uh, but they did have to dig into their savings in March because their incomes were flat, but they spent more, right? So they had to save less, and the savings rate dropped from 5.7 to 5.3. That's the lowest savings rate of the year. But it's not because consumers are spending more. It's because they're spending uh, less than was forecast, but they're having to dig into their meager savings to pay for it because their incomes are inadequate. So we got bad news uh, on Thursday, but we got a lot of bad news on Friday. The first number we got in the morning was April PMI Manufacturing Index. An April number, right? Not, not winter, April, springtime. And April PMI dropped more than expected, to 54.1 from 55.7 in March. So the number was higher in March when it was colder. And the weather got warmer, but the number went down. So the economy, at least as measured by the, the Purchase Managers Index, manufacturing, got weaker. That doesn't sound like an economy that's rebounding from the cold weather. If, if it was just about the bad weather, these numbers should be soaring back in April. But they're continuing to deteriorate. But the ISM manufacturing number was even worse, right? Now, this number was supposed to rise to 52 from the 51.5 we got in the cold and snowy March. Instead, the number stayed exactly the same, 51.5, no improvement. But what's really bad is if you look beneath the surface, because they have these sub-indexes, the most important one being the employment index. After all, the Fed is talking about how important the job market is, and they said we're only going to raise wages if uh, employment picks up. Well, the employment index dropped about two points to 48 point something. I forget the exact number. But whatever that number was, it was the lowest number in about two years since May of 2000. Not the lowest number. It's the first time that number dropped. So this is the first time that the employment component was negative in two years, since May of 2013. I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, we've been positive every month except uh, April of this year. And this is when we're supposed to be rebounding, and it was down. And get this, 
the actual level, the absolute level of that measure is at the lowest it's been since September 2009 during the Great Recession. So in other words, Janet Yellen is saying we're going to raise interest rates if the labor market improves. And we just got a report on the labor market that is the worst it's been since September 2009. Right. So obviously it's going the wrong direction. Also, we got construction spending in April. And again, this was supposed to pick up. Actually, we have, no, we didn't, we didn't get April construction spending. We got March. So again, this is a March number, excuse me. And so this is going to impact the, the first quarter of GDP, right? So they were expecting March construction spending to rise by 0.4. Instead, it fell by 0.6. So it actually declined by 50% more than they had expected it to rise. And again, this is a negative number. Now, when they calculated GDP for the first quarter, they had to make an assumption on what the construction spending was for March, because March is the last month in the first quarter. And obviously, when they were making their guesstimates, they were expecting construction spending to be 4 percent higher, 0.4 percent higher than it was in February. Instead, it was six tenths of a percent lower. And so that is going to result in a down revision, at least that part of it to first quarter GDP. And in fact, when they were first reported the first quarter GDP, the Atlanta Fed GDP now came out later that day with its first forecast for the second quarter. And remember, the Atlanta Fed GDP now is the only, I guess, government-related um, you know, uh, forecasting entity that got it right. They had forecast that first quarter GDP would be 0.1, and it came in at 0.2. So they were off by the smallest margin you could be off by without hitting it, you know, exactly, you know, the nail right on the head. They were off by one-tenth of a percent. Everybody else was looking for two-plus, and they were at 0.1, and they were right there, right? It came out as as 0.2, right? They would have won on the prices right. They were just below the actual number. Remember, right? If you go over in that show, you lose. So you just you just want to be under. They were right under. Well, they came out and they came and they're forecasting second quarter to be 0.9. 0.9. Now, obviously, if we got 0.9 in the second quarter, we got 0.2 in the first quarter, that averages a half a percent for the first half of the year. Which means in order to get 3% for the full year, the second half would have to grow at 6 where there's, you know, there's not a snowball's chance of that. But they've already reduced their 0.9. Based on the bad economic news that came out today, they're already down to 0.8. Now, you know, they're going to be making these reductions, I think, from now until the end of the quarter, which doesn't happen until the end of June. So how low can we go here? I mean, maybe they'll end up negative because they started at 0.9, already lowered the bar to 0.8. Meanwhile, the Fed is still living in fantasy land, expecting 3%, expecting a big comeback because they think it was all the weather. But, you know, if it was all the weather, then we shouldn't be expecting 3% in Q2. We should be expecting like 5% or 6%. You know, we should have to make up for all the spending that didn't take place because shoppers were just too darn cold. If they were just waiting to thaw out, they should be rushing in in April. Businesses should be hiring in a frenzy. We should have all this extra construction. Manufacturers should be coming back. None of it is happening.
because it wasn't the weather. But it's going to take some time for people to admit that. Also want to talk about a couple of articles that I read that, you know, particularly, uh, you know, annoyed me. But, you know, it shows the way of thinking. One of them is an article I read on Zero Hedge. And um, it's related to Goldman Sachs. And the title of the article has a quote from Goldman Sachs. And it says, Europe has a, quote, severe case of lowflation, says Goldman Sachs. So here's Goldman Sachs giving economic advice, I guess, to uh, European nations. And of course, if you're in government, the last entity you'd want to listen to for economic advice would be Goldman Sachs. I mean, it's like trying to get medical advice from Dr. Kevorkian, right? You wouldn't want to do that. Goldman Sachs is looking out for Goldman Sachs, not for its clients, or in this case, other countries that may or may not be their clients. But if Goldman Sachs is saying something, it's because it benefits Goldman Sachs, right? Now, Goldman Sachs benefits from inflation, right? I'm sure they're short the euro and all levered up and they own a lot of assets uh, and they want inflation. Inflation has been very, very good to Goldman Sachs, but it's not good for Europe. But how does Goldman Sachs get Europe to create more inflation? By making a case that they need it, by saying, yes, your problem is you have severe lowflation. You know, not just regular, normal, run-of-the-mill lowflation. No, 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 no. You've got a severe case. This requires an immediate remedy. I mean, what is, you know, lowflation, again, it's not deflation. And yes, as the Europeans measure their consumer prices, they're rising very slowly. But according to Goldman Sachs, this is a problem. It's a severe problem in need of a cure. So in other words, what Goldman Sachs is saying is that Europeans need to pay higher prices. Now, look, Europe has a lot of problems, don't get me wrong, but a lack of inflation, that's not one of them, right? I mean, if you're unemployed in Europe because of stupid labor laws that make it more expensive and risky to hire you, and so you're unemployed or you've lost your job, according to Goldman Sachs, if your landlord raises your rent, that will improve your situation. Or if food becomes more expensive. You know, the one thing you might have going for you is at least prices aren't going up that fast. That's like a small blessing, right? Because everything else stinks, but at least prices aren't rising that fast. And Goldman Sachs says, no, 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 no. We need prices to rise faster too. So not only do people have to be unemployed, they got to pay higher prices for food and electricity, you know, or clothing or medical care or whatever it is. We just want to make sure that prices go up because you've got a severe case of lowflation, right? Well, you know, if you believe them, you've got a, a severe case of low intelligence. I mean, that's the reality. Um, falling prices are good. Stable prices are not quite as good, but they're better than rising prices. And if prices are going to rise, the, the slower they rise, the better. So lowflation is better than highflation or midflation or tuper, whatever it is. But I just think it's interesting that they're out there giving this self-serving advice that benefits them. But of course, they try to put it in terms to make it think like this is good, sound economic advice and that European nations ought to do what Goldman Sachs says. Well, you never want to do what Goldman Sachs says because generally you want to do the opposite of what they say because they're, they're generally taking the other side of the trade. Well, the reason that Goldman Sachs wants inflation is because they're positioned to benefit from inflation. But they're trying to pretend that it's the European citizens who will benefit from a higher cost of living, but no, they will suffer.
from a higher cost of living. Like anybody, they would better for benefit from a lower cost of living. Now, along these same lines or the same line of thinking, right, is a article that I read in Bloomberg. And the title of this article is The Chinese Can't Kick Their Savings Habit. You know, like they've got this bad habit, you know, like smoking, right? They just can't kick it. They're addicted to savings and they can't kick the habit because this bad habit is hurting their economy, right? This nasty habit of earning money and not spending it, right? This is the problem in China that people want to save. Now, of course, that's not a problem at all. That is one of the reasons that the Chinese economy has been so successful is because people are saving. Savings is a good thing. Savings is what grows an economy because savings is what makes possible capital investment. And that increases productivity, raises living standards. Savings are the key. That's what makes everything work. The reason America is in so much trouble is because we don't save. But apparently, according to Bloomberg, what we need is less savings and more spending that the Chinese should follow our example here in America because we don't save anything. In fact, not only don't we save, we spend more than we earn. We go into debt to spend. And we want the Chinese to do that because it's worked so great over here. Well, it hasn't worked great over here. It's worked lousy over here. The Bloomberg reporters just don't know it. And they want the Chinese to follow our bad example and just spend their money. But it actually gets worse because the writer of the article, you know, he's trying to figure out why is it that the Chinese have this bad habit? How do they pick this up? And the conclusion is because they don't have enough government. Now, this is the irony of it, right? I mean, because America, basically, we're supposedly capitalist and and China's communist. And we're saying, hey, you know, China, the problem with you is you don't have enough government. You need more government like we have here. Now, what do they mean in, in, in particular? It's the social safety net. So they're saying that, well, the Chinese don't have social security. And, and, and so they're worried about saving for the retirement. And so they got to they put money aside. See, Americans don't have to worry about retirement because they got social security. And so if the Chinese had social security, well, they would be more confident and they'd, they'd be able to spend, which, of course, is nonsense. Because if you go back, number one, to the original uh, adaptation when Roosevelt conceived social security, it wasn't so Americans can stop saving. It was just a safety net in case you didn't save enough or in case something really bad happened and you had to blow, you had to spend your savings. You got sick or something happened unforeseen that you had something to fall back on. Right. That was the theory. At no point did they say, let's have Social Security so people can rely on the government instead of themselves. But now, supposedly, that's the problem with uh, China is the people are too self-reliant. There's too much rugged individualism in China. They need to be like Americans and just rely on the government. Just assume the government's going to take care of you so you can act recklessly. In fact, in this article, they talk about this guy uh, who, you know, earns money and, you know, I guess he's, they got a daughter and they live in an apartment and they, they, he earns about what $3,000 a month or so, the equivalent, like 20,000 won. And, you know, after they pay their rent and, you know, kinder, for kindergarten and stuff like that, that they have plenty of money left over, Right. But the article says instead of spending this leftover money, right, they they save it, right? Heavens to bid. They, they just, they actually have money left over. That's what savings is, right? The money that you don't spend. But they're saying, you know, they could take a vacation. They could go out to restaurants. They could buy stuff. But instead, they're just socking it away for their retirement or for their child's college education. They're doing a dumb thing. No, they're being responsible. They're being prudent. They're doing exactly what Americans should be doing, but we're not. 
And the reason that the Chinese economy is in good shape is because that is what they're doing. Yeah, and you know, of course, eventually the Chinese will spend more because once they build up a cushion of savings, once they have enough for their retirement, they have enough for their kids' education, they've got a rainy day fund, well, now they'll start spending more money. See, but Americans want to put the cart before the horse. We want to just spend money now. We don't want to build up a, a nest egg first. We just want to start spending. We just want to start borrowing. But the irony of it is that they, we're, we're telling the Chinese, and I've used this analogy like, you know, an, an F student trying to tell an A student how to study, give them advice on, on, on how to study for school. I mean, you got an F. What are you giving anybody advice for, especially to an A student? The Chinese economy is doing better than the U.S. economy precisely because they don't blow everything that they earn. They have a high savings rate, like America used to have a high savings rate. You know, part of the other ironies of this is because China is saving so much money, America gets to benefit in the short run because we're squandering their savings. We're buying the stuff that they're not. We're borrowing the money they're saving. So if the Chinese did start spending like Americans, who would prop up our economy? You know, we're, who would buy the treasuries? I guess the Fed would have to buy more. But that would mean prices would go up. If the Chinese started buying more of the things that they're making, Americans wouldn't get to buy those things because the goods would stay in China instead of getting shipped over to Walmart. Now, eventually all that is going to happen. The Chinese are going to get tired of this because the problem is, a lot of their savings are being blown because a lot of the Chinese savings are in U.S. treasuries, which means it doesn't even count because it's, it's a worthless IOU. If you loan money to somebody who's not going to pay it back, that's not real savings. That's just make-believe savings. Those savings aren't doing the Chinese any good. Now, fortunately for the Chinese, all of their savings aren't in treasuries. There is a lot of savings being used domestically to increase uh, productivity in, in, in China. But some, a portion of their savings is being squandered uh, on bad loans to Americans that are never going to get repaid. But when they stop doing that, you know, we're, we're going to experience this collapse. And the reason that people think that, 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 that spending is good is they think the U.S. economy is good. They think our economy is great shape. And they know that we're spending like crazy. We don't save very much. So they must conclude that, well, our economy is in good shape because we spend and we don't save. Well, it's in lousy shape. They just don't know it because we don't save. It's just that we've been able to run on all this borrowed money because our creditors haven't figured out that we're not good for our IOUs. But when this phony bubble economy bursts and we're in a tremendous depression and everything falls down, falls apart, then people will be able to point out, you see, you didn't save enough. You borrowed too much. You had too much debt. But while everybody is delusional and thinks the economy is great, then they think that there's no consequence to our lack of savings and our profligacy to the point where we actually go to other countries like China and say, hey, you need to spend more. You want to have a great economy, you know, whip out the credit cards and go into debt. You guys shouldn't be saving for retirement. You should put your faith in a giant government run Ponzi scheme like we do. Right. That's what we've socialized savings. A lot of people don't know it's a Ponzi scheme, but we've still turned over the function of the government. And what we're basically telling this supposedly communist Chinese is you got too much freedom in your country. There's too much free market capitalism going on. What you need is a government takeover of retirement. You need to nationalize, socialize retirement. Don't rely on yourselves. Don't trust people to make their own decisions and, and save for their own retirement. Let's have everybody do it through the government like we do in, in capitalist America. See, that's why I keep saying that America gives uh, capitalism 
a, a, a bad name because we, we preach it, but we don't practice it. Then we have all these problems. And China gives communism a good name because they claim that they're communists, but there's really a lot more capitalism going on in communist China than there is supposedly in, in, in free America. But of course, it doesn't even dawn on the people at Bloomberg. Let's assume that the Chinese were dumb enough to set up their own social security system. They have to take the money from their citizens. They still have to raise taxes. So if they're going to tax their people more, then their people have less. So they have less to, to spend, too, if the government takes money away. I mean, retirement isn't free when the government provides it. In fact, it's very expensive because it's lousy. I mean, how many people could actually live on Social Security? Again, not that it was designed uh, to provide a living, but... You know, a lot of people thought they were going to be able to retire on Social Security, but the returns are lousy. And of course, for younger people now, I mean, the people who, you know, started paying in 50, 60 years ago and they're collecting, they did all right because that's the nature of Ponzi schemes. The people that get in initially, they do okay. It's the people that were born in the baby boom who are expecting to retire on Social Security, they're going to be left holding the bag, right? They're going to be like the Bertie Madoff clients that found out that all the money is gone because it was paid out to people who uh, who got their distributions years ago. That's how Ponzi schemes fail. But this article is arguing that the Chinese need to raise taxes to create a Chinese version of Social Security, and somehow that's going to benefit their economy because in addition to paying these Social Security taxes, uh, they'll stop saving, and so net-net, maybe they'll have a little money left over because they won't save quite as much as the government steals uh, to finance uh, so their Social Security, and so they might go and buy more stuff. Look, the Chinese are eventually going to buy a lot more stuff. As their living standards improve, as their savings makes them more productive, uh, they, you know, they produce more goods, they will consume more. And as they build up their savings nest egg, they'll consume more. It's the Americans who are going to consume a lot less. You see, we've been indulging our present and sacrificing our future. The Chinese have been um, uh, sacrificing their present at, you know, in order to create their future. Right. They're living beneath their means now so they can have a brighter future. They're going to have the returns and a big payoff. Right. What we've done is we've we've said to hell with the future without knowing it. We're just going to live for today. We're going to spend everything that we have and this hope that the government bails us out. So Americans are going to have to pay a big price for our profligacy and the Chinese are going to get a reward uh, for their prudence. Kind of like, you know, the, the the turtle in the hair. Right. The hair gets off to a quick start. But it's the turtle that wins the race, and that's what's going to happen with this race. The Chinese are going to cross the finish line first. In fact, the Americans aren't even going to cross it. We're going to, you know, die of exhaustion. We 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 shopped ourselves uh, to death. Right? We shopped till we dropped, uh, literally. But the worst part of this article, the most ironic, ridiculous part about it, is when the author starts to write about how the Chinese didn't have this problem under communism. Right, that when they were communist, they didn't have all these savings. As if maybe they had it better when they were communist, because they 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 you know they didn't have this lousy habit that they picked up, you know, when the communism went away. As if maybe they should turn back the clock and be communist because they'd be better off. Look, the reason that the Chinese didn't save under the communist system, a real communist system, not one in name only, because they had nothing to save. They didn't earn anything. Or whatever they earned, uh, you know, there was nothing to buy. 
I mean, there's no point of saving because their savings wouldn't buy anything. You, you know, you just, you, you just got government jobs, which weren't productive, and everybody got some government money that didn't buy anything. So there's no point of saving because you couldn't even spend because there was nothing to buy. They had nothing. What's important now is the standard of living. Yes, the Chinese are not spending everything they earn, but what they are spending is giving them a much higher standard of living now than they ever had when the country was really capital, China, uh, communist. But now they have one thing that they didn't have, too, which is real savings that will support them. The Chinese can look forward to retirement, not Americans. Americans are going to look forward to working every day until they drop dead because they can't work anymore because they have nothing that they bet everything on an empty promise from the government. They put it all, they put all their faith in a Ponzi scheme and expected it to work. Well, the Chinese aren't relying on some government gimmick. They're earning their savings the old-fashioned way, right? They're, they, they're not spending. They have that leftover money, money they earned but didn't spend, that they were able to save. And because they saved it, they compounded it with interest, or they invested it and got a return, and they built up some wealth and that wealth will eventually afford them a much higher standard of living, a higher level of consumption, and a nice lengthy retirement. But America's profligacy is going to deliver the opposite, a lower standard of living and no retirement whatsoever. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.